0: We're going to start this morning by reading two passages. The first one will be in Psalm 110. One of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. Maybe the most quoted psalm, actually, in the New Testament. Psalm 110. This was written by David but it was fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find that out when we get to the New Testament, and we'll see that here shortly. Psalm 110, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. In New Testament terms, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. And especially here, the first verse, the Lord says to my Lord, God the Father says to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. And we'll read down to verse 33. Now in the sixth month. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David who wrote that psalm we just read and the virgin's name was Mary and coming in he said to her greetings favored one the Lord is with you but she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And His kingdom will have no end. When we consider the work that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to do in order to secure our salvation, His death on the cross obviously stands out as the culmination, the high point of that work. The cross was the great event that all of human history, from Adam and Eve onward, was moving towards. One hymn says it this way In the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. The cross towering over human history. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross towers over the wrecks of time as the single greatest event in the history of the world. And because of that, the New Testament over and over again directs our attention as Christians, back to the cross. It was there that our sins were paid for and the wrath of God was satisfied. It was there that the love and justice, mercy and wrath and all of the other attributes of God were displayed as they never had been before and never will be again. So we as Christians ought to be cross-centered people, and rightly so. But with all of that said, we don't want to forget that the cross was not the end of the story. The Lord Jesus Christ really did die. He really did. But He did not stay dead for long. And three days later, He burst the bonds of sin and death and rose victoriously from the grave. And then shortly after that, He ascended back into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that is what I would like for us to consider this morning. This truth of the present, exalted reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Present, right now, exalted, high up (laughs) reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the cross is central. Yes, we should be a cross-centered people. But at the same time, we don't want to fail to receive the blessings that come from considering the Lord Jesus Christ as He is right now. He's not only the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but He is the King of kings and Lord of lords who right now sits at the right hand of the throne of God, reigning and ruling until all of His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. And we're going to divide the message this morning into three parts. First of all, I just want us to read several passages that speak of this reality of the present exalted reign of Christ, more or less in a general sense. And then second, I want to consider some specific characteristics of this present reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we'll touch on a few applications and why this truth matters and what difference it ought to make in our daily lives. And first of all, right here then in Luke 1, we can see that this truth was something that was prophesied about Jesus before he was even born. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary, the mother of Jesus, verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And then in what follows, Gabriel tells Mary just what kind of son this child is going to be. Imagine this, hearing this, if you're Mary. Verse 32, He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And the point I want to make here is that Jesus' present, exalted reign in heaven was not some kind of afterthought in God's plan. You know, well, Jesus, you died and rose again. Now what are you going to do for the next few thousand years? No. All along, the expectation was that Jesus would complete His earthly ministry and work and then ascend back into heaven where He would rule and reign at His Father's right hand until the day when He returns to the earth in glory. And this was prophesied about Him before He was even born. And then after He did ascend back into heaven, this same truth was also proclaimed by the early church, specifically by the apostles in the book of Acts. So go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. So this was prophesied about Jesus before He was born. Later, it was preached by the apostles in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching here on the day of Pentecost, and we're going to cut right in here, Acts 2, verse 29. Peter says, he's preaching, remember, to these Jews that were gathered in the city of Jerusalem. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. David's in the ground. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses." Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, and here's this quote, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I'm sorry, yeah, this is Psalm 110, I'm sorry. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, it was part of their gospel message. It was part of their proclamation of the gospel from the very beginnings of the church, preaching about this exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't stay in the ground. He was raised up. And then he was ascended back into heaven and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Turn to Acts chapter 5. Again, I just want you to see that this was part of the proclamation of the gospel message from very early on in the church. Acts chapter 5, again Peter is preaching. Verse 30, he says, "...the God of our fathers raised up Jesus." whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So Jesus' reign at the Father's right hand was prophesied by the angel Gabriel proclaimed by the apostles, and then finally I want us to see that this truth was taught in the New Testament churches. And just to consider one example, there's a bunch that we could look at, but go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, as a lot of you probably know, was written to a group of Christians who were suffering intense persecution. And because of that, They were in danger of falling away from the living God. They were in danger of throwing in the towel on this thing of Christianity. Now, what can the writer say? What can the writer of Hebrews say to encourage them to press on? Think if you had a chance to address these Christians in Iraq right now who are being persecuted, what would you say to encourage them to press on? After they have been forced out of their homes, starved, and made to watch friends and family be murdered right before their eyes. What can you say to Christians that are going through those kinds of things? Well, what the writer to the Hebrews does is he reminds them that Jesus is on the throne. That's where he starts right at the very beginning of this letter, that is the truth that the author wants to emphasize to these believers. The trials they are experiencing are heavy. The suffering they are undergoing is real. But Jesus is on the throne. That's what He wants them to know. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1, When he had made purification of sins, death on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, right at the very beginning of this book, he wants these believers to know, Jesus is sitting right now at the right hand of God. He's on the throne. Having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they... For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. See, angels worship the Son. That's how much greater he is than the angels. Verse 7, Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne O God, deity of Christ, right there, He is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of Of your hands. Talking about Christ here, this is incredible. They will perish, but you remain. The heavens are going to perish, but you remain. They will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. And then again here, Psalm 110. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Over and over again in this first chapter of Hebrews, he's emphasizing to these persecuted believers that Jesus Christ is on the throne of God, reigning and ruling right now in the midst of their trials. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, again, just kind of skipping around here a little bit. But you can see how this comes up over and over again in the New Testament. Hebrews 8.1, Now the main point in what has been said is this, We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, sitting at the right hand of God. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ exalted to the right hand. And then one more passage here, Hebrews twelve, verse one. Has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now this was a very brief overview, and there's a lot of other verses that we could have looked at. Philippians 2, for example, is a major one. But what I want you to see here is that this reality of Jesus' present, exalted reign in heaven is not some obscure doctrine that the New Testament hardly talks about. It's talking about something that you find all throughout the New Testament, from Matthew to Revelation. And we need to realize, beloved, that there was a time when the Lord Jesus Christ was mocked, spit upon, beaten, and put to death by the hands of wicked men. But that time is no more. There was a time when the devil ruled with an iron fist over the realm of mankind, but that time is no more. And there was a time when sin basically reigned unopposed among the fallen sons of Adam, but that time is no more. Christ has died once for all, never to die again, and He now sits on the throne of the universe exercising His divine power and authority from the right hand of the throne of God, reigning and ruling right now over His kingdom, the Bible says, that will have no end. It was prophesied about before He was born. It was proclaimed by the apostles and it was taught in the New Testament churches as a foundational doctrine, not some obscure thing, but as a foundational truth to encourage believers. Next then, I want us to consider three characteristics of Jesus' present heavenly reign. What is this heavenly reign of Jesus like? It's one thing to say He's reigning and ruling, but what's His reign like? What are the characteristics of it? And we'll consider three characteristics this morning. Again, there's a lot more we could look at, but three characteristics of the present heavenly reign of Christ. First of all, it is a certain reign. Rain. Certain. Certainty. Second, it is all encompassing. And then third, it is a blessing. It is a blessed reign. So first of all, here, his reign is certain. And I want us to see this from First Corinthians fifteen. The reign of the Lord Jesus Christ is a certain reign. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. And we'll read down to verse 26. But now, Apostle Paul's writing here, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all those who belong to him will be made alive but each in his own order Christ the first fruits after that those who are Christ at his coming then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the god and father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet the last enemy that will be abolished is death Specifically, here, notice verse 25. He must reign. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And I love Paul's language here. Paul does not say that Jesus could reign, he doesn't say that Jesus might reign, and he doesn't even say that Jesus will reign. He says that he must reign. It's a certainty. He must. He must reign until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Now, some of those enemies are made a footstool voluntarily when you repent and you get low before the Lord and He saves you. And you're voluntarily a footstool. Lord, put your feet on me. (laughs) Gladly. Some voluntarily become footstools for His feet. Others, by force. But every enemy will be conquered. Every enemy will be made a footstool of His feet. As the hymn says, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does His successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till suns shall rise and set no more. Shore to shore, the kingdom of Christ, all of His enemies made a footstool for his feet. But it's not always easy to believe this, is it? After all, you don't have to watch the news for more than five minutes before you can start to doubt that Jesus really is reigning and ruling. Before you start to doubt that he really is working to put all of his enemies under his feet. North Korea, ISIS, Hamas, Boko Haram. And these are just the ones that are in the news right now. (laughs) What's going on? And what we need to realize, beloved, is that just because the Lord Jesus does not deal with His enemies in the same way we would, doesn't mean that He isn't dealing with them. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways, and His timing is not our timing. But His ways are best. And beloved, He knows what He is doing. Now, these are somewhat minor examples, but just think about this for a second. Think of the Roman Empire in the first century. Of course, it started before that, but think of the Roman Empire in the first century. The empire was a great enemy of the church. It was. Think of all the persecution suffered by Christians that were living in the Roman Empire in the first century and the centuries after for a while. How many thousands were killed under emperors like Nero and Domitian? Why did the Lord allow that? I mean, he could have put an end to the Roman Empire before the persecutions even started, right? Isn't that true? Yeah, it's true. It would have been nothing for him to do that. The Roman Empire is nothing but dust on the scales before the Lord. Just dusted off. Gone. It's gone now. It's been gone for a long time. He could have done it a lot sooner, kept those Christians from dying and the Colosseum, and so on. Why didn't he? Well, we don't know all the reasons, obviously, but think about this. This is a small example, but just something that came to my mind. Because the Roman Empire was so large and stable, and so powerful and wealthy, the Romans were able to build an incredible system of roads that linked together most of their empire. It was unheard of at that time in history to have a system of roads like the Romans had. Now, who do you think used those roads to spread the message of the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire? The early Christians did. So the Lord oversees the growth of this wicked empire, and he sustains it long enough so that this system of roads can be built that will be used to spread the very message that the Roman emperors were trying to destroy. And again, it's just a small example, but how many more of those kinds of things was God doing with the Roman Empire? See, we don't know. We haven't seen the big picture yet. Not only that, but the Roman persecutions themselves were one of the main reasons that Christianity spread the way that it did throughout the empire. Because people saw these Christians die in faith. And it shook them up. Man, what is this thing they believe? What is this gospel? Who is this Jesus? And the blood of the martyrs, as one person said, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church in that time. And the seed spread and grew like wildfire in first century Rome. Yes, Jesus' reign is certain. And yes, all of His enemies will be conquered, but He's going to do it in His way and in His time and he has good and wise reasons for what he does. Consider one more example, this one from the New Testament itself. What single individual was one of the greatest enemies of the very early church? Saul of Tarsus, right? Well, that's easy. I mean, the Lord could have just taken him out. No problem. Like that, done. Saul's gone. No more persecution from him. Yes, and if he had, the Lord would have lost the greatest missionary and theologian that the church has ever seen. So instead, the Lord orchestrates Paul's life and allows him to become the great persecutor that he was because he needed to experience those things in order to later become the great apostle that he was. I don't think he could not have been the person that he was had he not been there holding on to Stephen's garments as Stephen was stoned to death. He couldn't have been. Beloved, the Lord knows what he is doing. Oh the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And you realize how arrogant we can be sometimes? Well, if I were God, I would do it like this. No. If you were God, you would do it exactly like what He's doing because He is God. And He sees everything. And He knows what He's doing. And it's for the best. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And even though he doesn't always do things in the way we think he should, he knows what he is doing. As the song says, Though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. His reign is certain. Secondly, his reign is all-encompassing. His reign is all-encompassing. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter one verse fifteen. First characteristic: His reign is certain; He must reign. Second characteristic: His reign is all-encompassing, expansive. Ephesians one verse fifteen, and we'll read down to verse twenty-two. The first part of verse twenty-two. It was hard to know where to start with this because it's kind of one long sentence almost. But Ephesians one fifteen. Again, the apostle Paul. Is writing here. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority in power and dominion in every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things in subjection under his feet and i think when he says that here it almost sounds like a contradiction to 1st corinthians 15 here all things are in subjection there he's waiting to put all things in subjection i think here paul's talking about the fact that god gave the lord jesus christ all authority in His resurrection and ascension. He now has all authority over mankind, and yet over time He's working out this thing of putting His enemies under His feet. First Corinthians 15. But anyway, notice here the expansiveness of Christ's reign. God raised Jesus up. He seated Him at His right hand. Verse 21, Far above all rule, And to carry that out, far above all authority, far above all power, far above all dominion, and far above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Just all, all, all. (laughs) How expansive is this reign? How all-encompassing is this reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every authority in power, whether physical or spiritual, angelic or demonic, past, present, or future, Jesus rules over them all. That's Paul's point here. All. Yeah. In Matthew 28, after His resurrection, Jesus said, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. All authority. Beloved, there is not one drop of authority anywhere in the universe that does not belong to the Son of God. All authority has been given to Him. His rule is all-encompassing. Any authority possessed by men in the world today is simply a delegated authority. It's authority that they have because the Lord Jesus Christ has seen fit to let them have it for a time in order to fulfill His wise purposes. But it all belongs to Him in the end. He distributes it as He sees fit. He raises up one ruler and puts down another ruler. He is in control. In John 19, you remember Jesus was standing before Pilate, and He said to Pilate, You would have no authority unless it had been given you from above. It's the only reason any man can have any authority is if God gives it to him. The same is true of every so-called ruler in the realm of mankind today. They are all under the ruler of rulers. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. He owns the world and he runs the world. Sometimes in my social studies classes, we use these maps that show how land boundaries change over time land boundaries and land ownership and how it changes over time in history and so here's this map of europe perhaps and you have this chunk of land in europe and for these certain years it's owned by spain and then you go on a few more years and now it's owned by britain a few more years later it's owned by a different nation the boundaries are changing all the time ownership is changing all the time as different nations fight for control and it can all get rather confusing at times But if we looked at that same map from God's perspective, it would be very easy to read because all boundary lines would be gone totally and there would be one name written over everything. Jesus. That's it. Isn't that true? He owns it all. And His boundary lines never change. Abraham Kuyper once said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign of all, does not cry, Mine. Mine. <laughs> there isn't a square inch on the globe that Jesus can't point to it and say, Mine. The reign of the Lord Jesus Christ is all-encompassing. He has been seated at the right hand of God far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. He possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. So his present exalted reign is certain. That was the first characteristic. Secondly, it's all-encompassing. And then lastly, the third characteristic of His reign is that it is a blessing. It's a blessed reign. It's a blessing to the people of God. And this is found also right here in Ephesians chapter 1. And this to me is amazing. Ephesians 1 verse 22. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things, to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now, it's easy to read right over this. (laughs) But notice the language here. According to this verse, the Father gave Christ to the church. You see that? And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him, as head over all things, to the church gave him to the church now when we think of the father giving the son we probably think naturally of John 3:16 and verses such as that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son but here in ephesians we're looking at something different it's talking about a different truth In Ephesians 1, this verse, verse 22, is saying that after His resurrection and ascension, after He was exalted to the right hand of the Father and given all of the power and authority that we talked about earlier, after all of that happened, then the Father gave the Lord Jesus Christ back to the church again. John 3.16, the Father gives His Son for the salvation of, the, of sinners, and then after Jesus dies, rises again, and ascends back to heaven, the Father gives the Son back to the church again. Ephesians 1.22. Talk about a blessing, a gift of love. The exalted Lord Jesus belongs to the church. That's what He's saying. He gave Him to the church. He belongs to believers. He was given back to us by God the Father after His exaltation. But notice here that the Lord Jesus wasn't just given back to the church. He was given as head over all things to the church. In other words, the reign and rule of Christ that we talked about earlier is something that He exercises on behalf of the church. On behalf of His people. Another way to say it is that the Lord Jesus Christ was exalted to the right hand of the Father and He now reigns over the universe for the sake of His people. He was given as head over all things to the church (laughs) you see what Paul is saying here it's incredible it's not that Jesus goes back to heaven and sits at God's right hand it has nothing to do with us any longer until he comes back in glory no God raises him up and seats him at his right hand and then gives him back to the church (laughs) after investing him with all of his power and authority. When the queen of Sheba visited King Solomon back in 1 Kings 10, she said this to Solomon. She said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. You see the connection? In the same way, it is because God loves His people that He made the Lord Jesus Christ king over us. It's a gift of His love. It's a token of His love. I love you so much that I'm going to give the Lord Jesus Christ back to you to reign over you. (laughs) It's a tremendous blessing the blessing of Jesus' present exalted reign. Imagine that you lived in a certain kingdom and your best friend who knows you inside and out and better than anyone else has just been crowned the new king. And when he was crowned, he promised that every single decision he made would be made with your best interest in mind. Everything that he did would be in accordance with your greatest benefit. That would be something. But beloved, we have something so much greater than that in the Lord Jesus Christ, because He's not just some imaginary king of a pretend kingdom. He's the sovereign ruler of the whole universe. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and He's been given to the church, to us, in order to direct every atom in the universe to our greatest benefit, he's been given as head over all things to the church for our greatest blessing and ultimate good. And so it really is true that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God because he is on the throne. And it really is true that we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us because He is on the throne. And as unbelievable as it sounds, it really is true that we will one day sit down with Him on His throne, Revelation 3.21, because He is on the throne. And it's His desire for us to be there with Him. So I say again that Jesus' present exalted reign is certain. He must reign until all of His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. Second, His reign is all-encompassing, far above all dominion, power, authority, name, so forth. Jesus rules over them all. And finally again, His reign is a tremendous blessing to the people of God because He has been given to us as head over all things to reign and rule on our behalf for our greatest blessing and ultimate good. Three characteristics of the reign of Christ. Finally today then, what difference should this reality make in our daily lives? How should this truth of His present exalted reign at the right hand of the Father affect us? And I just want to briefly mention three ways that this truth should affect us. I hope it affects us in these three ways. First of all, it should affect how we pray. This truth should affect how we pray. In John 14, the Lord Jesus gives us one of the most staggering promises related to prayer. And this is what He says. This is John 14:13 and 14. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, no matter how you look at it, that's a pretty staggering promise. In fact, if we're honest, I think most of us would have to say that it's flat out beyond our ability to even really believe it. How can Jesus possibly say, whatever you ask in My name? How can He say, if you ask Me anything in My name? Whatever? Anything? It's impossible. And it is impossible unless... You're sitting on the throne of the universe. (laughs) It is impossible unless you possess all authority in heaven and on earth. It is impossible unless you are head over all things. You see, beloved, it's because of His present exalted reign in heaven that the Lord Jesus Christ can give us these kinds of prayer promises. Because nothing is too difficult for the one who reigns over all. Nothing is too difficult for the one who has infinite resources at his disposal. And nothing is too difficult for the one who holds the heart of the king in his hand like channels of water and just turns it wherever he wishes. So John Newton reminds us, Thou art coming... To a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. You're coming to a king. Infinite resources. None can ever ask too much when you're coming to him. You might think, yeah, but if Jesus is so high and exalted, then he's not even going to care about my needs down here. He can't understand what it's like to live in this fallen world, to be sorely tempted, to be painfully weak. It's fair. But have you forgotten Hebrews 4? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the what? Throne, right? Exalted throne. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. It's a throne of but it's a throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's walked in our steps, beloved. This same Jesus. He's walked in our steps. He knows what it's like to live in this fallen world. He knows how you feel. By experience. Not just intellectually. He felt The things that you feel. But he knows as one who now possesses all authority in heaven and on earth to help you overcome in the same way that he did. And that ought to affect how we pray. (laughs) This truth ought to change the way that we pray. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with bring. Secondly, the truth of Jesus' present exalted reign should affect how we fight our spiritual battles over sin and the powers of darkness. It should affect how we fight our spiritual battles. Back in Ephesians 1 here, we read that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, verse 20, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And you might say, well, that's nice for Jesus. What does that have to do with us? He was raised up over all of those things. What about us? Well, you've got to keep reading in Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 4, But God So back in 120, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. And then here in chapter 2, verse 6, God raises us up and seats us right alongside of Him. Jesus is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, and we are seated right there with Him. That's what Paul says. And I'll be the first to tell you that I don't understand all of what that means. And I'm guessing you probably don't either. But surely at the very least it means that as Christians, all of our spiritual battles are fought from a position of victory. All of our battles are fought from a position of victory. Jesus triumphed over sin and Satan and all the powers of darkness, and we have been made to enter into that triumph in Him, in Christ. Therefore, all of the battles that are left for us to fight. And there are battles to be fought, but all of the battles that are left for us to fight are fought from a position of authority and victory. So Jesus can say, Luke 10.19, Behold, I have given you, believer, authority over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. And the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 6, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. Because you're not under it anymore. You're over it in Him position of authority and victory it can often seem doesn't it it seems like sin and satan and the powers of darkness are like these gigantic godzilla monsters that are just towering over us coming down on us that's the way it can feel but it's never really that way it's not really like that We have been raised up with Christ. We are seated with Him in the heavenlies, far above those things. And in Christ, we tower over them with the authority and the power to say no to them on a moment-by-moment basis. You do not have to let sin reign. You do not have to listen to the devil. You do not have to give in to the powers of darkness. Again, behold, Jesus says, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. And then Paul says, sin shall not be master over you. You don't have to let it. You're not under that anymore. You've been raised up. You've been seated. And not just a little ways up seated. Highly exalted. Seated with the Lord Jesus Christ, sharing in His position, His power, His authority. So all of our spiritual battles that we fight, and again, there is fighting to do. It's not automatic. We've got to believe these things. And many times we don't, and that's the problem. Again, sin and Satan are like these big monsters towering over us. But they're, it's not that way. All of our spiritual battles are fought from a position of victory. And even when it doesn't feel like that is the case... We can take a stand by faith on what God says is true about us, because what He says is true is reality. Take a stand of faith on that, and we fight on that basis. And so I say that this truth of the present, exalted reign of Christ ought to affect how we fight our spiritual battles. You need to remember these things. It's practical stuff. Third, lastly, the truth of Jesus' present exalted reign should affect how we view trials in the Christian life. and should affect how we view trials in the Christian life. We said earlier that Jesus' reign in heaven is a tremendous blessing to the people of God because He has been given to us as head over all things, to reign and to rule on our behalf for our greatest blessing and ultimate good. And if He is head over all things, and if He has all authority in heaven and on earth, then this means that literally nothing can happen to the Christian that is outside of his control. Do you hear me? If He is head over all things, and the Bible says He is, if He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and the Bible says He does, then this means that literally nothing can happen to the Christian that is outside of His control. It can't. How could it when He has all authority? It can't. And even beyond that, it means that literally nothing can happen to the Christian that is not meant by the Lord Jesus for our greatest blessing and ultimate good. If what we have said this morning is true, then this has to be the logical conclusion, that nothing can happen to the Christian that is not meant by the Lord Jesus for our greatest blessing and ultimate good ultimate good painful at present glory to come ultimate good now but everything is working together for that it has to be if he's in control so what this ought to do is it ought to transform the way that we view trials in the christian life it means that when we encounter a trial It's not because Jesus fell asleep on the job. It's not because He fell off of His throne. Oops. No. We're encountering the trial because Jesus has orchestrated it, using His all authority to bring about the greatest blessing and ultimate good. In our life, one hymn says it like this Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. Is Romans 8 true or not? Does he cause all things to work together for good or not? Cause them to work together for good. He doesn't fall asleep at the wheel and let things get messed up and then come in afterwards and save the day. No, he causes them from the beginning to the middle to the end to work together for good every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of love. It's a loving thing that He's doing with us. We may trust Him fully all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. So instead of immediately asking, Lord, when is this trial going to end? We ought to be asking, Lord, what do you want me to learn? from this? What am, I, what am I supposed to get from this? What need in my life are you trying to show me so that I can be drawn closer to you? Because that's what he's doing. Because even if we don't have all the answers, we know for certain that he is in control of it and it's for our good. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, air to take as from a father's hand. One by one, the days, the moments fleeting, till I reach the promised land. You hear that? He whose heart is kind beyond all measure, gives unto each day, what He deems best. And sometimes it's pain, and sometimes it's pleasure. But it's whatever He deems is best. And it is always best for us. So hopefully, in closing here, this message will encourage you to think more often about this reality of the present exalted reign of Jesus. Again, not talking about some minor, obscure doctrine in the New Testament. Something that's all over the place. His reign is certain. It is all-encompassing. And it is a tremendous blessing for the people of God. And it ought to affect how we pray, how we fight, and how we face our day-to-day trials in the Christian life. Very practical Doctrine. Well, why don't we pray here? Close, Lord. We want to crown you with many crowns today, and rejoice and be thankful that you are on the throne and that You know what You're doing, and that what You're doing is best. And we pray that You would help us to believe that, to see that, to rest in that, to trust that Your heart is kind beyond all measure, and that You give each day what You deem best. Ask you to help us now to fellowship and to encourage one another in the strength that you supply. In Jesus' name.